Will Smith just slapped the shit out of Chris Rock. Welcome back to Searching for Political Identity, everybody. I wish I could have that much energy and enthusiasm and excitement every day as I do right now. Look, it's 1 a.m. It's Monday, March 28th. I'm a bit of a night owl lately. And I have some good stuff for you tonight. I'm not going to go very long, but I'm going to go pretty hard. So let's just get the Will Smith thing out of the way. Of course, I'm not watching the Oscars. Not that I have a problem with the Oscars. I've watched the Oscars in the past. And I, I, I'm I, fine with the Oscars. Just not watching. But I'm tweeting. And I'm doing some schoolwork. And... I see Will Smith starts trending, and I see the video, and it's like, wow. Will Smith slapped the shit out of Chris Rock. And we know what happened. Chris Rock made a joke, which was pretty funny. <laughs> I, I So I just saw the clip, so I don't know how Chris was doing. And it doesn't matter. Seemed funny to me. Um, but whoa. Whoa. I mean, wow. Yes, people are saying... The look on his wife's face, excuse me, her name, Jada Pinkett, Jada Pinkett Smith's wife, uh, face was was very distressed. So you could understand why Will wanted to act. But And then, and then he yelled, keep my wife's name. So, whoa. Holy shit. Chris Rock is declining to press charges. Wow. Okay. Yeah, what what else can you say about what to say about that? Wow, man. I'll leave it to others to make commentaries on that. I'm just not prepared. I just would be remiss if I didn't mention that because it was pretty wild. Okay, what I came to do tonight is talk to you about an assignment I have in one of my classes. This is my very last semester. So in a way, this is really one of my last assignments I'll probably ever have in school. And if you listen to my podcast or read my blog, you'll know that I'm in one of the classes I'm in right now is called Discrimination and Diversity Law. It's with a tremendous professor who I took last year for jurisprudence in which I got a heavy dose of critical race theory. I mean, I... I don't want to say I understand it, but I got a really good education in it last semester and am getting a really good education, a re-education in it this semester, but this time along with other civil rights theories such as, well, you learn about the spectrum, and I've mentioned it. You have traditionalism, which is like a Ted Cruz where, or John Roberts where you say, look, just stop discriminating by race because we're past that. You have reformism who say, reformists who say, look, we agree with that, but we're not past that yet, so we got to make uh, uh, race-conscious policies like affirmative action until we get to the point where we can really embrace that traditionalist view. And then you have critical race theorists who say, no, it's worse than that. We need to be reformists on steroids, so we need to socially transform to deconstruct America to and refashion it so that it's suitable for black people. And then you have limited separation, which, by the way, Derek Bell, the creator of critical race theory, and this is straight from my professor's mouth, so take it from his, not mine, and 
my, as I said, my professor has changed my life for the better. It's just the most amazing experience. I, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about him. But he has taught us that Derek Bell, towards the end of Derek's life, embraced, um, kind of went away from critical race theory and began to embrace limited separation. I'll tell you what limited separation is in a second, but before I do, I'll tell you why he embraced it at the end, because apparently Derek Bell said to himself at the end of his life, critical race theory is doomed to fail. It will never succeed because in order for it to succeed, it requires a critical mass of white people to agree with it, and it's just not going to happen. And that's really sad. And um, so I'm going to think about that as I reflect and go through this episode. But so he said, look, people act out of self-interest ultimately. And I think he's saying white people act out of self-interest ultimately. And for that reason, they're never going to support critical race theory. And society will never get fixed for black people. And so in comes limited separation, which says, let's create our own institutions think of uh, hbcu right did i say that historic no hbcu excuse me historically black uh, college un or university the idea would be to replicate that and say look it's not that only black people can attend these institutions but it's that these institutions are going to protect racial identity protect their racial integrity and it sounds like segregation, right? It sounds like a return to segregation, but it's not, according to my professor and uh, according to the theory itself, it's not because segregation was a forced condition, right? Segregation was enforced by Jim Crow, slave owners and Jim Crow, but this would be separation, not segregation, and the idea being, like I said, a white person can attend, an Asian person can, can attend, and so on, but they, the institution would be able to reject a white person on the basis of their skin color or an Asian person on the basis of their race if doing so would jeopardize the racial integrity or racial identity of the institution. So whether it's a college or a kindergarten, or a fire station, police station, a bank, I mean, go on the list. We're talking about creating a sub, not a sub-society, that's a terrible use of language. We're talking about a separate society. We are talking about a separate society. Uh, not totally separate, limited separation. So it's an interesting theory, and you know, it's not one that I naturally come to as a, just from my own point of view. I didn't occur to me that that would be a good idea. Um, but the logic behind it is that, and and I'm a reformed, I'm a Jew, I'm a reformed Jew. But I I've seen at family events, uh, conservative and even Orthodox Judaism, um, and what what that means to have this culture, this tribe. So I think it's about, that movement is about um, facilitating that cultural identity, that cultural solidarity, that's the word, cultural, cultural solidarity. 
so that the black community can just continue to strengthen. So, so that's pretty appealing, actually. Again, it's not what I would have come to, but so you, ha- so you see you have traditionalism, which again is just the idea that, hey, it's, the, it's Ron DeSantis and Ted Cruz quoting Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and saying, skin, you know, we shouldn't judge people on the character, a uh, content of their, <laughs> we shouldn't judge, it's late. We should not judge people on the color of their skin, right? That's the traditionalist. And you have many people of color who are saying, dude, you're taking MLK's words out of context and you're using that to justify maintaining this colorblind attitude and and yes it's true that the you know the constitution and the laws have developed in our country in America to promote this idea of a colorblind society but but the real idea behind critical race theory is that hey you're living your lie white people you're living in a fantasy land with your colorblind society. And meanwhile, us black people were getting harassed and killed by the police and so on. And, and that is critical race theory. Um, whether it's in the policing realm or housing or job opportunity, um, any sort, really any realm of society, the argument from the critical race theory perspective is black people are getting discriminated, still being discriminated against even in this colorblind society. So that's the rift, right? You have Marshall Blackburn, Ted Cruz, Ron DeSantis, um, and so on. Now it's interesting when you have people of color supporting the Republicans. That's what I, and, and what, so what would the critical race theorists say about that? They would say that those are non-reps, that Ben Carson, Larry Elder, Candace Owens, Tim Scott, Herschel Walker, um, if, you, you know, if you know any people of color that are conservatives, the critical race theorists would say that person is a non-rep, is a non-representative black. And it's not for me to say whether or not that's fair. I'm considered white, I guess. You know, I'm, I'm a very pale Jew. Um, and so I can only tell you that it disturbs me. I, I, I do, as I'm searching for political identity, you can see why this class is so helpful. This education is so helpful because I do seem to think that individualism matters and that anybody can, any human being can come to kind of, you know, their own conclusions. And so if a person of color wants to embrace traditionalism and says hey look the time for worrying about skin color is over just kind of get carry on then who am i to say that they're a non-representative black but the critical race theorists will essentially say that um and so yeah they'll say look the the representative black wants transform wants social transformation and so the question is always, well, okay, so what does that mean? And that's where I'm at right now, to be honest with you. And I hate to sound like this 
cranky, traditional William F. Buckley wannabe white guy. But it's like you do find yourself thinking, what more do you want? You know, what more do we need to do to to vindicate the civil rights of black Americans? If the claim is that the discrimination is still rampant, what more can the government do to eliminate that discrimination? I want to know, what does that social transformation look like? And until I get a solid answer on that, you know, it's a little frustrating. And I can honestly understand why the Republicans come in and say, well, yeah, what they're, what they're not telling you, what they want to do is socialism or communism. Ooh. You know, they want to redistribute wealth. They want to raise taxes unconstitutionally. They want to uh, reorganize society. They want to take... So, and by the way, critical race theory, as Ted Cruz pointed out in his uh, questioning of um, Kitanji... Excuse me. I knew I would get that wrong. Kitanji Jackson... Oh, my God. It's so late. And I only wrote the initials, TC, KBJ, so... Um, Ketanji Brown Jackson, excuse me, he asked her, um, now what was I saying? I, I cleared my throat and took a sip of water and I forgot what I was saying. Um, oh yeah, we're back. I got it. Okay, I checked. I cheated. What I was saying, what I was going to say is that Ted Cruz alluded to this when he was talking to Ketanji Brown Jackson. He said critical race theory really belongs to this root ideology, this root academic philosophy theory, which is critical theory in general. So it could be race theory, it could be um, gender theory. Um, There's all Asian, you know, if you want to separate out, you know, so any minority group. And this is why the right has been saying for a long time now, that the left, that the Democrats, that the left plays identity politics. And this is why I I really hate to make this about me. Searching for political identity. I'm trying to pick up on this. The, I, I do, it does seem to me that the left is the one, if you don't want to call it playing identity politics, let's call it promoting theories that ask you to look at people in groups. Okay, and I just don't see it coming from the right. I see the right, I see non-representative, quote-unquote, black people on the right joining, if you want to say, white people um, to say, no, we don't like critical theory. We don't want to think of society of seg- as segments. We think everybody is an individual who can take care of themselves, and if they need help, they can get help, We have a minimum safety net for that in our society. But no, enough of this critical theory. I don't want to hear about Asians being discriminated against and black people being discriminated against and LGBTQ members being discriminated against. Um, You know, we live in a free country. This is the Republican view, right? We live in a free country. We live in the greatest country. You know, there is no place in the world that a black person has more opportunity than in this country. Same with a member of any of these communities that are quote unquote complaining in the critical theory. So 
that is the dynamic, I think, and I don't mean to be disrespect. I really don't mean to be disrespectful. So onto the critical, onto the assignment in the class that I'm learning about critical race theory. Let me read you. This is what's so cool about being in law school. Okay, let me pull it up. Exactly what the professor said. Dear class, the assignment. By the way, it's Monday. It's one thirty. 1.30 a.m., and um, tomorrow, Tuesday night, I have this assignment due, and so I'm working, I've been working on that. That's what's fueling this episode. Dear class, the assignment for next Tuesday's class is changed to allow us to ponder this great historic event playing out before the Senate Judiciary Committee. I can't read. Namely, the nomination of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court. I would be remiss as your teacher and as a human being if I allowed this educational moment to pass with little consideration by the class. Accordingly, at next Tuesday's class, Group 1, by the way, which I'm in, which is already scheduled to present on Tuesday, will listen to the questions Senator Cruz put to Judge Jackson at yesterday's hearing on 322 and provide a response thereto. Your commentary should write out both the questions and your answers to the questions. Without writing the uh, commentary, all other members of the class should be familiar with these questions so that they can test, uh, can contest or confirm the views offered by students in group one or offer new views. In addition, the entire class should consider the other side, specifically Senator Booker's remarks made today, the second day uh, of the senator's questioning, which drew an emotional response from many in the chamber, including Judge Jackson herself. Everyone should come to next Tuesday's class with an answer to, sorry, I was just fixing my microphone cord, to this particular question. So I'm in group one, and I have to you know, write out Cruz's questions and answer them. And then this is part of the email is, is to the larger class, the class at a whole, as a whole, uh, professors asking all of us to um, come to Tuesday's class after watching Senator Booker's um, questioning and answer this question. How do you assess within the scope of our classes Senator Booker's lawyer-like summation of the Supreme Court nomination of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Okay. And then he says, we are focusing on Senators Cruz and Booker because I want us to consider heavy arguments on both sides of the nomination. I want us to be fair. All right, so this is uh, pretty pretty intense, pretty cool. And I wish I had the energy or ability to quickly give you all the context, but we're learning all the case law. You know, we've obviously been reading all the relevant case law uh, pertinent to civil rights discourse. And like I said, we have these four theories now to work with after. So um, we have all the statutes that we're going through and what they do. And so we're, we're giving all these tools. It's a very sophisticated class. It's a wonderful class. And so this is the impromptu assignment in light of current events, and I am super thrilled. And I, yeah, I mentioned this in a blog post the other day. I think this is this nomination is like the four, third or fourth really interesting legal event that I've been fortunate enough to go through uh, to experience as a law student. Let me take a sip of water. Excuse me. 
Yeah, I think I said the first Trump impeachment was wild. And I was literally learning about impeachment in con law as that happened that week. So I was like, okay, crazy. Uh, Now, the professor did not talk about uh, the current events, which I found interesting. But it was just a weird moment. So we had the first Trump impeachment. Then there was the Kavanaugh hearings which were insane, right? I mean, they were just insane. Got to experience that in law school. What was the... I think there was a third one before... um, Gosh, before the uh, current hearings that I'm talking about now. What was the third thing? I'm not talking about the second Trump... Oh, January 6th, maybe? It must have been... I wonder if I... I better have said January 6th, right? Shame on me if I didn't write January. Now I got to check. Hold on, hold on. Um, let me just make sure that I noted how wild. If I was gonna talk about four crazy things, I better have mentioned January six. COVID, COVID is COVID is what I mentioned. Mm. Okay, so Trump's first impeachment, the Kavanaugh hearings, COVID, and the Brown Jackson hearings. I should have mentioned January sixth as well. Forgive me for that rather gaping oversight. So, yeah, it's it's been a crazy time. It's been a crazy last few years. And I've been lucky enough to go through it in law school. So that's been just, just really fortunate for me. And here's this assignment at the very end. And we're finally being asked to look at current events. And this is the current event that we've got. The um, appointment hearings of Judge Brown. So, yeah, I wrote out the questions. I guess I'll run through them real quick, and I've gone longer than I thought I would. But here's some of the questions that Ted Cruz asked her. Uh, Do you agree that one of the primary reasons the colonizers declared independence was to protect the institution of slavery? Are you aware that since coming out, the 1619 Project has been roundly refuted by very respected historians? Um, So these first questions... Getting at the core of CRT um, and the 1619 Project's thesis, which is that, now now, I'm not going to sit here and argue that racism wasn't built into America. I mean, don't mistake what I'm saying. I'm a full, okay, I mean, I'm not a Mel Gibson Holocaust denier. I am not a white supremacist, slavery, Jim Crow, redlining, uh, employment discrimination denier. I, I get it. I get it. And I want to be part of the solution. So maybe I'm a reformist. Maybe I just don't want the steroids. Maybe I'm even a traditionalist. But either way, and this is the point Professor makes, by the way. By the way, Professor is a Yale alumni, extremely um, impressive uh, and pedigreed law thinker, law law professor, who spent many hours chatting with Clarence Thomas and uh, the Clintons and Scalia and Alito is in the background. And so he has a wealth of experience to bring as a black man, this professor who went to Yale. Um, he's just He's just the bee's knees, man. And so he says to us, he's the real deal is what I'm saying. And what he says to us is all these people, whether you're in one of those, whatever group civil rights theory you ascribe to, 
We all want the same thing. Clarence Thomas, these non-reps, they're not racist. Alito's not a racist. Um, and while racism does exist, John Roberts, the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, is not a racist when he says the best way to end race discrimination is to stop discriminating by race. That is the heart of traditionalism. I, su I suspect Ted Cruz gets behind that statement. These guys are not racist. The problem, the, the tension is that critical race theory does posit that, that the colorblind attitude of a traditionalist actually turns a blind eye to justice. So this is a, di a difficult dynamic because now you have people who are saying, hey, I'm not racist. You know, you're, you're insinuating that I'm racist because I don't want to look at people by group and gender and, 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 and try to reorganize society around them just because I think we already live in a pretty damn good society for these people. And I don't want to do that. And now, now you're making me feel racist by telling me I have white privilege in, you know, white privilege in 2022. And so I know it's real. I know discrimination is real. I know black people get looks, get pulled over that, that white people don't get. It's just horrible. And I don't know what the solution to that is. And I want to be part of the solution if there's something that I can do. But I have to be honest with you when I say that my exposure to these materials, it leaves me saying, just tell me what the end game is. Is it reparations? Okay, let's talk about it. I mean, tell me how that works and tell me what it is. And maybe I'll, shit, maybe I'll get behind that. I mean, tell me where this goes. Now, I understand. So I guess what I'm saying is I don't deny redlining. I understand all these things happened. These pe it's not that conservatives are ignorant of these things and ignoring, well, you might say they're ignoring them. But that, so that is the dynamic. The conservatives just say, look, these things happened. It's terrible, but all, all we can do is move forward. So it's a dynamic, and I am searching for political identity. So, but I'm trying to hopefully help you, dear audience, navigate this a little bit too. I'm certainly trying to. So Ted Cruz, uh, in conclusion, you know, just wrapping this episode up, he asked her, um, are you aware that the New York Times edited its digital version to remove references to 1619 being the real founding year of America? Um, in your understanding, what does critical race theory mean? What is it? And um, that's going to come up a lot to, in class tomorrow because she didn't... Well, no, she answered it, but professor seemed to insinuate that he thought that she played a little coy and he, he would have liked to see a full-throated defense of critical race theory, I think, from her. Um, here's another question from Cruz. So critical race theory has its origin in the critical legal studies and crits are explicitly Marxist. I guess that's not a question, more, more just saying that crits are explicitly Marxist. And that is a key thing, and I've spilled a lot of uh, um, verbal ink, so to speak. I've, I've said a lot over the course of this podcast that I do sense that the core of critical race theory is tied to property rights because it's all about the 
obvious stain and disgrace and sin of the fact, the reality that people of color, black people, were treated as property, plain and simple. So there's that pain. How, can you fix that relationship between people of color and private property? I mean, f- that is the core question right there for me. Is it beyond repair? Does it even make sense to say, hey, we're going to introduce you, integrate you into a society that focuses on private property when you, in fact, were treated as private property yourself? Um, so when people say critical race theory, they're Marxists, and the critical race theorist defenders say, no, you, <clears throat> that's, the, uh, that's not fair to say. I go, well, you know what? I wonder if it is kind of fair to say, because it's all about claiming, or not claiming, but it's all about reorganizing, uh, socially transforming, I can't speak tonight, socially transforming society so that it fits your, the, peop, the black perspective, if you will. And where, what role does private property have in that vision for the country? So I, I do understand why the conservative reaction is to say, wait a minute, that's Marxist. You want to take my house. You want to take my white picket fence. You want to take my 401k. I earned this. No, no white privilege gave this to me, and that's debatable. That's debatable. So what, what do we do? I think critical race theory would benefit from more defined end goals. Um, now, let's see if there's anything else I want to say. Cruz mentioned these books. Um, that are taught in grades uh, K through 12, um, written by Ibram Kendi. Um, he says, um, are you comfortable with Ibram Kendi's books being taught to children? Um, do you agree that this book, with this book that babies are racist? Um, he went hard on her, on her... Um, law school note about punishments for sentencing for uh, sexual offenders and went very hard on her sentencing as a judge for uh, possessors of child porn. And if you haven't been following that closely, she, uh, he grilled her and had this chart and made you know this whole spectacle of the fact that um, apparently she is within the mainstream of how judges are sentencing these days, but what that means is that she often um, sentenced first-time possessors of child pornography, even ones with you know many hundreds or thousands of images, um, to to less than what not only the sentencing guidelines. Uh, called for, but what the prosecutors asked for in a given case. So trying to paint a picture that she consistently in child porn cases um, was lenient um, and trying to ask why, trying to paint her as a progressive judge. So you'll have to make of that what you will. I don't have time or energy or the ability to speak very much longer to get into 
any of that. And plus, I don't know anything about it. But that kind of summarizes what's... Oh, and then, you know, I'll just spend a minute on Cory Booker. Cory Booker comes around and he is the definition of the happy warrior, right? He did... First of all, he impressed me very much in the race for president in 2020. I thought he was... I thought he ran a great campaign. And his his MO is to just be unrelentingly relentlessly positive upbeat and so uh, often it it hits right and it's inspirational there are times where it feels really hokey and i think for the most part he was inspirational and good and it was cool so i will say about so i like him talented guy obviously very smart guy and he said basically Whereas Cruz treated, and Paul Butler, um, who I saw in a great Chris Hayes segment, um, said that she was treated as a criminal defendant. And that prompted me to look at his Twitter and see that he is selling a book called Chokehold. So I bought that. I'm looking at it right now. Chokehold by Paul Butler. Looking forward to reading that after the bar exam. Um, But um, Paul said she was treated like a criminal defendant by by Ted Cruz. So I agree with that. And Cory Booker then played the role of uh, um, defense attorney. Um, yeah. So he he was emotional. And what I would say about his, his defense of her, his time, how he used his time to question her, is that he very eloquently spoke about what it means for a person of color to be represented in the federal government. How, when he came to, um, I think when he was he was talking about when he began as a senator, but when he started in politics, you know, when the housekeepers came and the cleaners came at night, you know, the percentage of minorities really increased around the around here, and that was powerful. So, yes, representation matters. Um, and he really, he really focused on that. He said, I can't, when I look at you, I can't help but think of my mom and my cousins. And, you know, he talked about Harriet Tubman and all this stuff. And it was moving. And Judge Brown Jackson uh, was moved to tears at one point. And, and, and it was all good. But I'd be lying to you if I didn't have something in the back of my mind saying, you know, you know, I guess race and gender does matter, you know. So it matters a little bit in the sense that representation matters. I don't want to, I don't want to be unfair and say, and and Cory Booker's demonstration is an example of why the Democrats are are political. You know, they they do identity politics, and you know, he's just being human. He's just being human, and he was really cool. Um, he told a cute story about how when he was going for his morning jog that morning, someone basically accosted him on the street, and uh, this woman, black woman, I believe, I assume she was black, and was just saying how joyful she was about um, the prospect of Judge Brown ascending to the Supreme Court. And, and Cory Booker's point was, we're not going to let anyone steal our joy. I'm not going to let anyone steal my joy. So Cory Booker said, I am so joyful when i look at you and i see you america is better because of you it's going to be better because of you and despite what all my colleagues are doing on the other side 
which is to try to paint you as easy on crime and this and that. When I look at you, I, I see a harbinger of hope. And so he got into that rhetoric and it, it was a stark contrast between that of Ted Cruz. And I'll just wrap this up by saying I'm so proud and happy, not proud, proud is the wrong word. I'm so happy to be in a class where a professor wants us to do this kind of assignment. And I will, so tomorrow I'm going to think about this more and complete the assignment, get ready for, uh, to present it. But, um, or to do my five minutes of presentation when it's my turn. But it reminds me of a, a great documentary, my favorite, in fact, documentary that I've ever seen. It was on Netflix. It's called Best of Enemies, and it featured the debates, I think it was in 1968, between William F. Buckley and Gore Vidal. If you haven't seen Best of Enemies, go watch it. That's what I'm going for with this podcast. I want an academic, real, respectful, raw, human, intellectual, debate, conversation about serious ideas and, and real stuff that affects, affects people. Um, and uh, you can't totally avoid politics. It's just not possible. But you can try to be cool. You can try to be even-handed. And that's what I'm trying to do. So this is my journey. This is where I'm at. So lucky to be in law school. I'm a 32-year-old guy. I have a great job by day. By night, I go to school. I started this podcast, and I'm just uh, I'm pretty happy with, with how things are going. Um, so as I gear up for the bar in the next coming months, you know, a month or two away from really gearing up, I'll have to really wind down my Twitter activity, and I'm going to try to maintain this weekly podcast, though. So it's, I'm just letting you know that's going to be coming up. So I'm taking you along with me is, is, is what I'm saying. So thanks for listening. Have a great day, great night, whatever it is. And uh, hit me up on Twitter and let me know what you thought. Thanks. Bye.